Today we'll be talking about real-world strategies to improve the outcomes in children ages 2 to 5 with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. I'm Dr. Amy Paller, Professor and Chair of Dermatology, Professor of Pediatrics at Northwestern University, Feinberg School of Medicine. You can download a PDF of the presentation under the Event Resources tab on the left side of your screen under the headshot. You'll be redirected back to the landing page after the webinar to complete the post-test and evaluation. You can then download or print your certificate. The program is provided by North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, LLC, the HMP company. This program is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer. The learning objectives of this presentation are to discuss atopic dermatitis treatment approaches specific to different age groups and different levels of disease severity, to optimally integrate into clinical practice the biologics and small molecule inhibitory agents recently approved for the treatment of atopic dermatitis based on efficacy and safety data, to effectively manage treatment side effects, and to outline safety and efficacy data for emerging treatments of atopic dermatitis. So atopic dermatitis is a common chronic inflammatory skin disease characterized by pyritic skin and a relapsing pattern. It is primarily a pediatric problem in that 60% of patients present before one year of age and about 90% by age five years. Overall, about 15 to 30% of children have atopic dermatitis and about two-thirds have mild disease. Although there is data that is somewhat controversial, we can estimate that about 50% of children have atopic dermatitis as adults, but clearly the higher risk is with greater disease severity. There are some essential features of atopic dermatitis. These are defined to be pruritus or itch, and eczematous dermatitis, whether acute, subacute, or chronic. That dermatitis tends to show typical morphology and age-specific patterns. In addition, another essential feature of the dermatitis is this chronic or relapsing history. Other important features of atopic dermatitis, the diagnosis of which is primarily clinical, are the early age of onset, atopy in the individual, or the family, that is having other atopic disorders like asthma and allergic rhinitis or food allergy, and then IgE reactivity quite common. And finally, the xerosis or dryness of skin. There are several associated features which may be seen. These include some atypical vascular responses, having keratosis pilaris, those follicular-based keratotic papules that are most common on the upper outer arms, the upper thighs, and particularly in younger children on the outer aspects of the cheeks, pityriasis alba, where there are indistinct hypopigmented lesions that are particularly noticed during months when the skin has been able to brown, for example, from ultraviolet exposure, and we think represent leftovers from um, 
subclinical inflammation, hyperlinear palms, that is being able to see a lot of fine lines on the palm, which are a characteristic feature particularly of those who have ichthyosis vulgaris, common genetic disorder of a deficiency of filaggrin and therefore dryness that tends to be seen with increased frequency in association with atopic dermatitis. Other associated features are ocular or periorbital changes, regional findings like perioral involvement and periauricular lesions, and then perifollicular accentuation, seen more with skin of color, lichenification or thickening of skin, seen with chronicities, and in some individuals, pterygo lesions, those lesions that are quite papular and always excoriated, uh, particularly on the lower extremities, very hard to see primary lesions. We need to remember that this diagnosis of atopic dermatitis, again, primarily clinical, requires exclusion of other disorders which may look similar. For example, young children with scabies scratch quite a bit and may develop secondary eczematization. Seborrheic dermatitis in a young child, perhaps two, three years of age, can be present and sometimes is seen in addition to the atopic dermatitis. Similarly, irritant or truly allergic contact dermatitis can look like atopic dermatitis or can be seen concomitantly. I already mentioned ichthyosis vulgaris, a very common genetic disorder with dryness of skin, but other forms of the ichthyoses can also show red, dry areas with scaling and can be confused with atopic dermatitis. Other disorders to think about are psoriasis, photosensitivity dermatoses, immune deficiencies, and erythrodermis of other causes. We're focused today on toddlers and children, that is two years through five years of age, under six years of age. And it should be important to recognize that this is an age at which the lesions tend to be leading towards more involvement of flexural folds. They tend to be less exudative than the acute lesions in the younger children, the infants uh, under two years of age. And we're getting out of the area of the diaper being spared because this is an age where children become toilet trained. The morphology of lesions also can differ from those that we see as these children get older, that is adolescents and adults, where we tend to see a bit more lichenification, we see more involvement of hands, feet, uh, periorificial areas like eyelids, perioral and periocular areas, as well as on the neck. But then this uh, distribution is not absolute. We certainly see many toddlers and young children who have the exact same distribution that we can see in our adolescents. And sleep disturbance for parents, and that has been shown to be one to two hours per night for parents of those with moderate to severe young children. When thinking about the pathogenesis of atopic dermatitis, we need to recognize that there is an impaired barrier that is a barrier that has to do with the uh, lipid content being altered, particularly with the very long chain fatty acids and ceramides in the barrier, 
as well as a decrease in certain proteins of differentiation, olagrin being one of them. These are all reduced and make antigen much easier to trigger immune responses in atopic dermatitis skin, as well as um, makes the barrier such that water loss is easier, leading to skin dryness. We also have an increased risk because of this barrier of infectious diseases and colonization with organisms. In addition to the abnormality with the barrier, this is a disorder that has skewing of the skin immune system, particularly with relation to interleukin-4 and interleukin-13 and other Th2 cytokines and chemokines. The other pathway with skewing is an increase in interleukin-22, which we think is involved in the thickening of skin and lichenification with chronicity. Genetics is very important in children of this age. We know that if there's one atopic parent, 25% of children will have manifestations of atopy by three months and 50% by two years of age. If one atopic parent is severely infected, there's a 50% of atopy, and the risk is higher if the mother's affected. If both parents are atopic, that risk of having an atopic condition by two years of age is even greater. As mentioned earlier, the greatest genetic susceptibility gene is the gene encoding filaggrin, that very important barrier protein. Now, that epidermal protein filaggrin plays many roles. First is when there are loss of function mutations, as in ichthyosis vulgaris, that's been associated with more severe and earlier onset of atopic dermatitis, as well as enhanced allergen sensitization and an increased risk of developing eczema repeticum and asthma. As mentioned earlier, a clue is the hyperlinearity of the palm and also pattern scaling, with scales particularly seen on the lower extremity and when the humidity is less, for example, in wintertime. Philagrin breakdown products also are a component of the natural moisturizing factors on skin. These are slightly acidic, so they affect the skin pH towards healthier skin. And they also impact the balance of protease activity, because proteases are activated at higher pH. Filagrin protects keratinocytes against staphylococcal toxin-mediated cell death. And the minority with atopic dermatitis have a genetic defect in filagrin. But nevertheless, once atopic dermatitis occurs, those cytokines that are increased, that Th2 skewing, further reduces the expression of filaggrin. And so we see a secondary impact on barrier proteins as part of atopic dermatitis. Recent studies have shown that immune activation that characterizes adult atopic dermatitis skin is also seen in early atopic dermatitis skin. In studies that we've performed in infants and toddlers with the onset in the previous six months of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, we have shown that there is Th2 and Th22 or IL-22 skewing in lesional skin versus controls just as in adults. 
In fact, in children, as you can see here, looking at the pink bars, which show non-lesional skin, again, not normal skin, non-lesional skin, because there is not normal skin in children with atopic dermatitis, we can see that there are actually greater increases in this skewing towards TH2, as shown with interleukin-13 as, as its biomarker, and TH22, as shown with interleukin-22 here, in the non-lesional skin, just as there is that increase in the lesional skin, but even greater with non-lesional skin than in adults. If you look here on the right, you can also see that it's not just a very high expression of TH2 in skin, but also very high levels of TH2 expressing cytokines circulating in the blood. And we can look specifically at CD4 positive T cells, and not just that, but at CLA positive CD4 positive immune cells, because this is a subset of cells in the blood that homes to skin and can be evaluated when looking at skin-specific disorders. And here we can see that because there's not only the increase in the TH2 in homing CD4-positive T cells, but also a reduction in the TH1 or interferon gamma-expressing CLA-positive CD4-positive cells that we see in these children a marked decrease in the TH1 to TH2 ratio that persists through this entire age range in these children with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. It's important to recognize that the prevalence of atopic dermatitis, asthma, and rhinitis in this age group is increasing, and that these multi-morbidities often coexist. In two longitudinal studies from Europe, if one looks by four years of age, we can see that 4% of them already have uh, this coexistence of this multi-morbidity cluster in 6% um, in, in one study. So we're starting to see this multi-morbidity cluster based on the fact, most likely, that it shares this mechanism and perhaps shares some genes that predispose individuals, as well as perhaps environmental factors. If we look at the risk of bacterial skin infections, this is much more seen with those who have moderate to severe disease than with mild atopic dermatitis. We know that, that Staph aureus colonization is seen on the skin in 74% of acute lesions and 38% of chronic lesions, but it's quite uncommon in controls with healthy skin. Uh, there is that increased susceptibility to infection, particularly with moderate to severe disease that usually requires an oral antibiotic. Microbiome studies have shown that with flares, there's increased Staph aureus and reduced microbial diversity. And it's been more recently shown that commensals make anti-Staph aureus products. So in preclinical studies and some early studies in humans, treatment with commensal bacteria has been shown to restore dysbiosis, improve atopic dermatitis. Interestingly, there's even been a study that showed that colonization of the antecubital fossae at two months with commensal staphylococci was associated with the lower risk of developing atopic dermatitis at 12 months of age. 
So it's a very interesting area of investigation now to look at the microbiome and possibly use it therapeutically. Moving away from bacterial infection, there's also an increased risk of certain viral infections. We know that particularly in those with moderate severe disease, there's an increased risk of eczema herpeticum with these herpes simplex lesions clustering at the sites of eczema activity. More recently, eczema coxsackium has been described, particularly with coxsackie virus A6. And again, we see these inflamed, erosive, um, and sometimes vesicular lesions clustering at sites of involvement of the atopic dermatitis and thus frequently confused with eczema herpeticum. And then, of course, there's uh, molluscum, which, of course, is quite common in this age group in general, but particularly in those with more severe disease, can be quite widespread and associated with molluscum dermatitis and exacerbation of the atopic dermatitis. Now, in the last few years, there have been several guidelines put out with recommendations for the treatment of atopic dermatitis. Unfortunately, although all of these do include recommendations for pediatric atopic dermatitis, there aren't any specific uh, to, to pediatric patients in this age range of two to less than six years of age. However, uh, one can look at uh, some reconciled guidelines that have been called the yardstick guidelines, which provide step care, uh, step care management for uh, moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Now, treatment of anyone with atopic dermatitis has to start with basic management. That is skin care, including moisturization liberally and frequently, warm baths and showers using non-soap cleansers, usually once per day, followed by uh, the use of moisturizer immediately, even on the quote-unquote clear areas, which, as we mentioned repeatedly, um, are not normal skin but just our non-lesional skin, and then trigger avoidance, of course, with uh, avoiding proven allergens and common irritants. These might be soaps. They may be temperature extremes. They may be harsh fabrics. And then considering comorbidities, it also can uh, be triggers. We then go on to treat acute flares with topical corticosteroids. Now, in this severity group, we tend to use medium to high potency topical corticosteroids twice daily for flares, and we continue them for three to seven days beyond clearance. We might consider the use of topical calcineurin inhibitors, uh, pemicrolimus, or uh, what's on label for moderate to severe disease is tacrolimus therapy, and approved for ages two and above at a concentration of 0.03%. We will try sometimes to use off-label 0.1% uh, in this age range because we know it can be even more effective, but is not always easy to get. The other non-steroidal agent that we can consider using is chrysoboral, um, and, and uh, this, of course, is the phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor. Uh, and both the topical calcineurin inhibitor and chrysoboral can be used for more sensitive areas because they don't have a risk associated with thinning of skin, um, and we don't worry about using them for longer periods of time. I would mention also consider wet reps in this age group for flares. These can be very effective in cooling down skin and helping, frankly, to drive the topical uh, agents that you're using that are anti-inflammatory 
uh, medications better into skin. Um, and these are done, of course, most commonly by taking a, a um, long underwear type of uh, tightly adherent pajama, uh, making that wet for application, and then applying a dry layer on top and can be very effective if you can get the kids to put it on. But even uh, just having the kids sit in this for an hour uh, before bedtime, after uh, the, uh, the bath and the application, so moving that up, uh, can be very helpful. Um, we also want to consider uh, alterations in basic management by the addition of leech baths uh, that we can talk a little bit more about. Uh, as well as the application of topical anti-inflammatory medications. Um, the, the difficulty with moderate to severe disease is not so much treating the acute flare, but in um, the maintenance therapy that is going to maintain the disease control but also be safe. Um, so we might consider uh, moving down from a medium to high potency topical corticosteroid to a low potency one for maintenance, including even on the face, um, and a medium potency once or twice daily if needed, except on the face. Although I will say if we have to use so much topical corticosteroid, we might want to consider going to a systemic agent. Um, maintenance topical calcineurin inhibitors has also been shown to, to be very effective. Uh, used once or twice daily, and this is again improved for above two years of age, and I'm more comfortable doing that on a regular daily level than I am steroids, uh, and in some patients you can use um, steroids on some days, maybe two days a week, and use apocalcineurin inhibitors on the other days. Uh, Crisoboral may have a role here as well to try to help as a steroid sparing agent. Uh, we would consider proactive therapy as well, because this is a, a type of approach that, that we need to think about. Um, I want to just say a little bit more about the, the bleach baths here, because the, the bleach baths um, are very uh, helpful uh, in decreasing severity. Now, one would think that they might be helpful in decreasing infection, but they really are um, mostly helpful in improving the barrier and reducing the inflammation. So they become a maintenance therapy that we say should be used in anybody with moderate to severe disease at this age group at least twice a day. And if they're quite severe, we even use them once a day. They're generally well tolerated and can be very helpful in decreasing that crusting and making children less severe disease. I also want to say a word about uh, the um, proactive management, uh, this is the concept of getting things under control with twice daily um, or once daily or aggressive therapy and then dialing down to once daily from there to two to three times a week, whether we're using a topical corticosteroid or whether we're using a topical calcineurin inhibitor. And then in areas that recurrently flare, when they are clear or almost clear, continuing two to three times a week with the application of the topical steroid or the topical calcineurin inhibitor, even though it looks clear or almost clear, to try to maintain control rather than having terrible flares, getting under control, another bad flare, et cetera. And it's been shown that doing this proactive management for many children 
uh, reduces the overall use of the anti-inflammatory, and particularly the topical corticosteroid, and keeps them on a more even keel with respect to management. Now, I want to talk a little bit about topical corticosteroid phobia because it's been widespread. Several studies have shown that there's a great fear um, of skin thinning, of growth and development even, and a variety of factors because they think about topical steroids in the same vein as they think about systemic steroids and brought with all kinds of problems. Um, in fact, the majority of parents have steroid phobia, so we really need to spend a lot of time talking about the safety of these agents and using them safely. Uh, it's important to recognize also that steroid phobia can lead families to use what they may consider natural or herbal agents that may not themselves be as safe. Some even contain steroids, but many of them contain fragrance or a variety of plant products that can be sensitizing. Uh, one of my favorite lines is that poison ivy is totally natural, but you wouldn't want to put it on your due to less than six-year-old. Uh, so we have to be very careful. These are not regulated in the same way that prescription products are. We often don't even know what's in these products fully or the percentages that are used. We also need to spend time talking, though, about the topical calcineurin inhibitors because of the black box warning that was put on in 2006. Um, and this black box warning was a theoretical risk. It's unusual to do a black box warning because of a theoretical risk, but this was done because we knew that there was a risk with systemically administered high doses of tacrolimus for transplantation, uh, giving suppressive levels in the blood and an increased risk of a particular type of lymphoma and also non-melanoma uh, skin cancer. Now we're we're uh, almost 15 years down the road here, and, and there really hasn't been any evidence uh, of these risks. And I think that we can use these agents very comfortably uh, in children down to two years of age. And, and by the way, they're certainly often used off-label in younger children as well. Um, one of the things we have to think about is alternative agents. If not resolved in seven days, we need to consider whether the family is not adhering uh, and I think it's so important to give written action plans because we can talk all we want about what to do, but if they don't have written action plans to refer to at home, parents just won't remember. We also need to consider whether there might be a contact dermatitis and refer to an appropriate specialist. Uh, we talked a little bit already about the bleach baths, but I want to just show you some of these data. You can see that it was a change in the eczema area and severity index change in the percent body surface area in these various studies, um, and in particular in the, the study that um, was the randomized double-blind controlled study that suggested that there's an anti-inflammatory effect. Uh, in these studies um, that we actually did many years ago, um, there was not a difference in being able to culture out Staph aureus at three months um, out at the end of this study. This was not quantitative, but despite the reduction in severity, we still cultured it out. It did not affect colonization. Uh, and now these bleach baths are recommended as part of guidelines, as standard of care, used up to daily. We know that 
in the areas that are not submerged in the bath that one won't see the effect on decreasing severity. So we recommend using a washcloth for this area. For those who have severe hand and foot dermatitis, one can use local soaks. The concentration overall is 0.005% that's used, and that's the same as about a scant teaspoon per gallon of water or one cc per liter. And we do these for five to 10 minutes, followed by patting dry and applying the uh, medication um, and or moisturizer. Usually this is well tolerated unless there's raw skin and there's been uh, no deleterious effect found on many of the parameters that are looked at in atopic dermatitis skin. Again, this does not alter the microbiome or staph aureus, has a primary effect on barrier and inflammation, needs to be used as maintenance, not when there's just a flare. There's a little bit more about the proactive therapy that I talked about, trying to make a more even keel with regular application intermittently to clear and almost clear areas, overall decreasing total use of steroids and therefore increasing compliance. When we get to severe disease, we have to think about basic management, really good treatment with topical agents, but if that's not doing enough, going to systemic immunosuppressants, including cyclosporin, methotrexate, mycophenolate mofetil, and azathioprine. That's kind of in my order of how I like to start these, although I don't like to continue cyclosporin more than a few months, and I will always tend to then transition to a different agent or to possibly even phototherapy. These kids can be treated with phototherapy with a parent in the booth. Um, avoiding steroids is very important. We know they do a great job, but they're not practical. You can't continue them for very long, and there's a rebound effect with steroids. That's a tremendous problem. Um, although you see dupilumab here, it's only in trials right now in this age group, and we really don't know yet its safety, although so far um, the studies would show that it's safe down even to uh, 6 to 11-year-olds with very good results, and I suspect it's moving into this area. We sometimes hospitalize. Just for a few days even can get these kids under control. Now, that's not going to help with maintaining at home, but we educate parents in a hospital setting, and that may help them very much in understanding how to maintain control at home. There is an algorithm that I would refer you to for considering systemic therapy, and it applies very much as well to these young children who we very infrequently will move to systemic therapy but still need to in some cases, uh, and that it includes making sure that we've considered things like patch testing for contact allergy, which can be a driver of persistent dermatitis despite the very appropriate use of topical therapy. Um, the only new therapy that's been available for the two to less than six-year-old in the past few years is crisoboral. Um, I want to mention that when we look, though, there's a, fury of a flurry of activity with more than 1,500 PubMed articles in 2019 alone on atopic dermatitis. And what's coming up is the dupilumab, as I mentioned. Dupilumab targets the shared IL-4 uh, receptor subunit, which is the receptor that is used by both interleukin-4 and interleukin-13, those uh, TH2 cytokines that we think are, are very important in driving atopic dermatitis. Uh, we've had some uh, recent results reported in meetings 
in children 6 to 11-year-olds with severe atopic dermatitis, although hopefully the indication will come through as for moderate to severe. This was a phase three trial, as you see here, with uh, randomization of these 367 children to either receive placebo or weight-based dupilumab with 100 milligrams every two weeks um, for those who uh, were under 30 kilograms with 200 milligrams every two weeks. So for those who were 30 kilograms or and above, and by the way, with dupilumab, we always give a loading dose that's twice the uh, maintenance dose, and then uh, 300 milligrams every four weeks given regardless of weight. It's a 600 milligram loading dose as the other arm. Uh, these patients were treated for 16 weeks with this regimen and followed up thereafter. The results really were stunning um, with clear or almost clear uh, in 30 to 33% versus 11% in placebo, an easy 75 of about 70% of those treated with the active medication versus 27%, and a percent change in the easy, that eczema area and severity index, of uh, about 80% in those um, on active therapy versus placebo. Uh, we also saw no surprises here, the same kind of a safety profile that's been seen with adolescents and adults. This medication is on the market now for adolescents and adults. Um, and here we can see injection site reactions, of course, more with the active ingredient, uh, but still um, uh, in the minority of, of young children. Conjunctivitis seen with increased frequency in this age group, but actually skin infections, including herpes infections, seen more often in those treated with placebo. Now, the pediatric studies, including the ones that I showed you, uh, in using biopsied skin suggests that um, other inhibitors of the TH2 pathway might be efficacious. And it's really the interleukin-13 that's found with the greatest amount uh, in the atopic dermatitis skin. So um, ralokinumab and lebrachizumab are two agents that um, are inhibiting specifically the IL-13 cytokine by somewhat different mechanisms. Tralokinumab is now in studies in the uh, adolescent age group, and we're going to see that with lebrachizumab coming next. These are, again, for moderate to severe and targeting interleukin-13. Now, JAK inhibitors are another group that I want to mention for moderate to severe disease. So JAK activation is downstream of all of these various cytokine receptor activations. So it's downstream of the IL-4 receptor. It's downstream of IL-22. It's also downstream of the IL-31 receptor. And IL-31 is a primarily TH2 cytokine that is, has been called the itch-specific cytokine because it's really thought to be very important in generating the itch of atopic dermatitis. So here we can see that there are agents that inhibit DAC activation. Um, these are Paracitinib inhibiting JAK1-2, um, and Apatacitinib, Abracitinib, even more specific, inhibiting JAK1, which is really thought to be the one for atopic dermatitis. And these are all um, in late phase trials 
uh, for um, adolescents, for adults, either moving that way or currently in trial. And then there are topical agents. Uh, ruxolitinib is a JAK1-2 inhibitor that is topical um, and is looking very promising, including in um, some adolescents. Um, and in the future, delgocitinib will be tested as well in adolescents. And I'm sure as safety is seen, these will continue to move down into the, the young age group. There are some concerns about the safety of JAK agents, particularly when given systemically. Um, so far, the trials in, um, in adults um, it, with these agents for atopic dermatitis have shown good safety, but of course the numbers are small. Uh, we need to have many more studies, many more patients, and then uh, ultimately only bringing it down into the younger age group if good safety is seen. Um, there will be a black box warning on, on this group as well, most likely. Um, now, topical therapy, on the other hand, where we're not getting systemic absorption, should that be the case when safety studies are done, uh, could be very promising for this age group. And even, even the um, oral JAK inhibitors, these are oral and not injected as, as opposed to the monoclonal antibodies, um, if, if safety is seen. Um, now, here's a little bit about topical JAK inhibition. Uh, there have been studies with topical ruxolitinib, um, early studies with topical delgocitinib. You can see here with ruxolitinib um, a percent reduction in the eczema area, area and severity index. That's excellent. Uh, even better numerically than tacrolimus 0.1% ointment twice daily, and certainly significantly better than the vehicle in this early study. I want to just introduce you to one other topical medication. This is the first-in-class therapeutic aryl hydrocarbon modulating agent, or TAMA, called Tepinarov. Uh, and this has been tested, including in some adolescents, um, and found to be more effective than vehicle when used twice daily. Um, the only adverse event that was seen was some mild folliculitis, and actually stinging and burning occurred more often with the vehicle than with the active in, in this early study. This uh, is an agent that had uh, very good results with um, clear or almost clear or reduction by 75% in the easy score compared to vehicle. You can see it's a good vehicle, very good um, response to vehicle as well. Um, and, and I'm sure uh, if safety continues to be shown, we'll move into this very young age group. Finally, I want to talk a little bit about the microbiome. I alluded to this earlier. Uh, again, with flares, we see this shift with a reduction in commensals and an increase, particularly in Staph aureus, which we've known for a long time drives inflammation and decreases barrier function. Uh, these commensal bacteria, though, have really in the focus of a lot of attention because they've been shown to play an anti-inflammatory role and themselves can kill staph aureus. So the question has been raised, can these commensal organisms be used as a topical treatment? And I want to show you some interesting studies. Uh, the first comes from Rich Gallo's lab in, in San Diego um, in which uh, he's been able to show that coagulase negative staphylococci like staph epidermidis and staph ominis are reduced overall in the lesional skin of atopic dermatitis, but that these um, staphylococci actually can produce antimicrobial factors that selectively kill staph aureus. And it's not just a reduction overall 
of these um, bacteria, but also a marked reduction in the ones that are effective at killing Staph aureus. And he's been able to take adults um, with atopic dermatitis and pick out bacteria from them that are these coagulase-negative staphylococci, find the ones that have the best activity at killing Staph aureus, amplifying these, and then doing what he calls an autologous microbiome transplant in which he takes these bacteria, applies them to the arm of these adult patients versus vehicle, and then counts bacteria just 24 hours later and shows a dramatic reduction when these uh, commensal organisms that can kill Staph aureus are applied to that skin. And this group is moving forward then in taking a Staph hominis that has a strong anti-Staph aureus activity and moving it towards commercial applications. Another group from the NIH has found that a gram-negative commensal called Rosiomonas mucosa is also reduced in atopic dermatitis and can have Staph aureus killing activity. It has similarly been developing this as a topical regimen with a few strains of Rosiomonas mucosa with strong uh, anti-staph activity. Uh, and in early clinical studies that are all open label, in children and adults have published that uh, there is a reduction in itch, a reduction in the uh, SCORED or scoring AD, another score that's been used, and a reduction in the use of topical steroids. And uh, these are, this is also moving towards trials in children as well. So these interesting studies support the use of commensal organisms as therapy, including in children. So in conclusion, the severity of atopic dermatitis uh, is moderate to severe in about a third of children overall. The treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in these young children requires a multifaceted approach with education, avoidance of triggers, vigorous emollient application, use of topical anti-inflammatory medications, and vigilance for potential exacerbance, particularly infection and contact dermatitis. In many patients, chronic use of topical anti-inflammatory agents is needed to maintain control, and in the most severely affected children, systemic therapy should be considered. Uh, new topical and systemic agents are currently in trials for adolescents, and we expect in the next few years to see them tested in younger and younger children, including down to two years of age, once safety and efficacy are confirmed. And hopefully, that will give us, for the first time, some very safe agents to use in this age group for moderate, severe disease, in addition to the use of our current topical agents. I want to thank you very much for listening.